Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. The unspeakable name. It's sort of an awkward thing to give a message on something that is unspeakable. You ever thought about that? How in the world do you talk about something that is unspeakable? Well, this is a concept in Hebrew understanding and in Christian understanding because the Christian world is built out of the Hebrew roots. Christianity isn't Christianity if we do not have a Hebrew basis. And so everything that is even validated in the Bible is because it perfectly matched with the Old Covenant. It was the outflow. It was the, the fruit that was born out of the plant. Jesus is the author and the finisher. He's the first and the last. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth. He's the one that designed the Hebrew culture. And then out of it, he came. He is a derivative, an outflow, a fruit of that culture. And as a result, when you understand that culture and you begin to understand the roots of the old covenant, the understanding of who God is in their understanding, you begin to recognize that there's something that is very closely held to their hearts. There is a deep reverence and there is a fear of God that oftentimes we as Christians do not have. We are a very lax, very uh, irreverent group. America has become a very irreverent culture. You just go to Great Britain, for instance, and whether or not you would call them reverent, there's still a certain order or a nobility. And so I remember uh, hearing about uh, our, our president and the first lady went over to visit the queen, and the first lady of America stuck her hand on the shoulder of the queen. And that was, that was not appropriate. Uh, and so that was a big scandal in England. In America, that actually is a sign of affection, but in England, that was a sign of diminishment of authority. And so us as Americans are like, hey, excuse me, what is the issue here? Uh, Our first lady has the right to touch your first lady, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because in that culture, there is still a sense of authority. There's a sense of reverence for position. We here in America don't have that anymore. I know not all of you are from America, but if you come from a different culture that still has that strange, intangible thing known as respect, then you notice that it's missing in a culture like this. Even the way we speak about our president here in this country. You may not agree with his politics, but you know what? He still is the president. And if he came in here today, I would demand that all of you would show him respect. So... As we begin to live our life, we begin to realize that if we take our American lack of the fear of God, our American diminishment of respect, and carry it into, not the Oval Office here in America, but the throne room of grace in heaven, how is it affecting our relationship with God? So when we get to something that is known as the unspeakable name, it is interesting how we as Christians deal with it. Because the Jews are still under a certain weight of law. And they are actually fearful of the judgment to come unless they can prove in their own life perfect righteousness. That is a weight that will crush any human. 
The law was given to the Jews that it might lead them to the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. But when you reject Jesus, all you remain, all you have left is law. And you have to produce righteousness. And so the way in which they handle the unspeakable name is part of their righteousness. And they're locked into a system that actually there is no liberty and freedom. We as Christians actually have liberty and freedom, but we've lost something in the handoff. We received Jesus, but we lost or we dropped the awe. We dropped the respect. We dropped the fear of God. My encouragement today is that we take Jesus and take the liberty that is in Christ Jesus, but return to the awe, return to the respect, the fear of God that has always been a part of God's kingdom. So I have another name for this message, but the reason I didn't make it my formal name is because no one has a clue what it is. And so I wanted to introduce you to it because it's a far better word than unspeakable. Unspeakable isn't the proper way of saying what we're going to be talking about today because unspeakable, unspeakable means you cannot speak it. However, that's not actually the best word to translate into the English for what this name is. It's the name of God in the Old Testament. It's the formal, proper name of God. And if you're a student here at Ellerslie, you're very familiar with that name, but that's what this message is about. But instead of just looking at it as the unspeakable name, I want to describe it as the ineffable name. And to do that, I need to describe for you what ineffable means. Ineffable. It's too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. It is indescribable, inexpressible, beyond words, beyond description, begging description, clothed in mystery. It is beyond something that can be comprehended. Therefore, the language that you have cannot properly state it. It cannot articulate it. It cannot clothe it with words. And so what do you do? You remain silent because it is ineffable. And God's name is given in the Old Testament is ineffable. It describes who he is and every one of us that even studies the passage in Exodus goes, I don't get it fully. That's exactly what the Hebrew culture has dealt with for thousands of years. I don't fully understand this. There's a mystery there. It is beyond me. God is so much bigger than I can comprehend. And so what would the Jews do? They went silent. Whenever that name would come up, they would not speak it because it is ineffable. It is beyond them. It is bigger than them. It is beyond description. It is beyond their comprehension. And to show proper respect for it, do not attempt to articulate it. Be quiet. Be silent. It is beyond you. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So Moses has asked God a question. God has shown himself in the burning bush, which is quite a story that I can't go into, unfortunately. But God has revealed himself in a bush that is aflame with fire. And a voice comes out of this bush and is speaking to Moses. And God is commanding Moses to go back to Egypt and to command Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses' request is, who should I say is sending me? And this is God's response. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Does that sound like a proper name to you? Hi, my name is I am that I am. That's actually God's proper name. That's how the Hebrew understanding would work. 
This is God's name. My name is Eric. God is I am that I am. However, it's sort of like being called Benjamin and then shortening it to Ben. Listen to this. Thou shalt, thou shalt say, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. So God goes by I am. He is the great I am. Now, I know that's strange. What a strange way of describing yourself. Or what a weird name to have. And yet, that's what this message is about. This is actually what it is in the Hebrew. It would be pronounced something like, Aye, Asher, Aye. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. And technically, if we want to, because this is, this is a conjugation of, the, of a, a word in Hebrew that means to be. And it's a very unique use of it. Because most people wouldn't say this. However, most people are not pre-existent. They aren't eternal. They aren't the source of all life. Yeah, so this is a little odd when you're naming yourself and your God. How do you describe yourself? So it could be that I was that I was. I am that I am. And I will be what I will be. The concept is I am always the same. I would never change. I never have changed, and I never will change. I just am. You see, we aren't I am. We fluctuate all over the map, depending on our mood, depending on our circumstances. We aren't. But God is. And so the concept here that we're going to build on is this is the, the idea of the ineffable name. I recognize if you have smoke coming out of your ears, that's exactly what the problem is. That's why it's ineffable. It's like, Whoa, God speaking to men, the one who is? Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Aye, hath sent me unto you. Now what's interesting is most of you have probably never heard the name Aye as a name for, for God. It's like, well, that's not his name. And so that's, that's what, because when you say the name of God, you don't say it the way God would say it. You say it as a third person looking on and describing God. Okay, you wouldn't say when you're talking to me, I am Eric, unless your name was Eric, of course. You would say, you are Eric. And the same is true with God. We don't call him AA. That would be like saying, I am. Well, I'm not. He is. And so the way we say it would sound more like Yahweh. AA is I am. Yahweh is he is. Aye, it's God's proper name. So when God's speaking, he would say Aye, which is I am or I will be. Man speaking would say Yahweh, which is he is or he will be. So many of you have probably at least heard the term Yahweh or Yahweh. And Yahweh, if you're good with your Hebrew, they always seem to get mad at the addition of a W because Hebrew never had a, a W sound in it. And yet, I don't think anything's being harmed by doing whoo uh, and saying that. Same, same name. He is, and he will be. And so what we have is Yahweh, and then you've also possibly heard the name Yehovah or Jehovah. Jehovah, for a, someone who loves their Hebrew and is very particular, they get all mad at the addition of a J, too. Because uh, the, the, the Y says Y, not J. And yet, for us, those of us that are familiar with Jehovah, did you know that that's actually the proper name for, for God? That's us basically saying, 
He is, and he will always be. That's what it's saying. And so it's actually the same name. Most of us are around all these names in Christianity. We grow up studying the Bible, and we see the word Lord or Adonai. We see the name Yahweh. We see the name Jehovah. And we're like, oh, wow, he has a lot of different names, which he does. Don't get me wrong. He does have a lot of names. However, those are all the same name. Every name I just gave you right there is the exact same name, and they say the exact same thing. So he is and he will be. This name was considered to signify God as eternal, which means he's always been there and he always will be there. It also signified something known as immutability. I know, big word. I'm not trying to throw some big words out at you, but that means he will never change. He's changeless. He is forever and he never alters. So when you get to know him at the burning bush and he reveals his nature at the burning bush, did you know that that nature will never alter? And for all of eternity, he is the exact same. You know what that does for us as Christians? That means anything we see revealed of God in Scripture is still true today. He is. So when you know this as a baseline understanding of the name of God, his name indicates in its most basic, proper sense, he is. He will always be, and he will never change. You know what faith is built out of? That understanding. And I'll get into that. But the very concept of faith is understanding, whoa, whoa, he is. And God says, you got it. You see, he is, we aren't. You know what the great problem of false religion is? We are. I can do it for you, God. I can do it for you. I can be righteous. And we think we are all that. No, he is all that. And so true Christianity, true faith comes from knowing that he is the solution. Every false religion, every bit of breakdown of humanity is thinking that we are, and we can do it. So, he's immutable, who will never be other than the same. He's the God who is, who was, and who will always be the same. Proper handling of the name. So, the Jews were entrusted with a name. Could you imagine just knowing even what to do with this name? It's the name of God. Whoa, what am I supposed to do with that? Moses is actually told, tell him that A.A. Asher A.A. sent you. Whoa, the proper name of God has been entrusted to a people. It was. It was given to the Jews. It says in Exodus 27. Now, you'll understand, see, only a little while later, I mean, we're talking... A month later, I don't know exactly how long it would have been. A couple months, I need to check into that to get the exact dates. But Moses is now on Mount Sinai. And he is receiving the Ten Commandments. And this one says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now remember who has been entrusted with this name. Moses. You shall not take this name lightly. You shall not take this name wrongly. This is the holy, holy, holy name of God. Do not take this name in vain. For the Lord, which by the way is Yahweh, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And all the Jews trembled. They were entrusted with this name, but how dare they ever treat it lightly. And so this led to even what we could call superstition. You see, God isn't saying that you cannot take my name. 
It's just that you should not take my name in vain. And so what has happened over the centuries is there's been all sorts of encumbrances that have been brought to the Jewish culture, fears of being struck down by lightning even if you wrongly use this name, which I think it's great. Talk about a great fear of God to have upon a people. But they cannot write it. They cannot speak it. This is a very, very delicate thing in the Hebrew culture. And so as a result, you have a formation of other ways to communicate the name other than to actually say the name. The tradition on the Day of Atonement, only once a year would anyone in the entire Hebrew culture ever speak the name. And it had to be one specific person. And that that was the great high priest, or in this case, the high priest of Israel. So the ineffable name for God was uttered aloud only on one day of the year. It was the Day of Atonement. It's considered the most holy day in all of the Jewish calendar. And this only by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. When the people heard the name, they prostrated themselves in deep reverence. The name was spoken aloud. But it had to be the holiest man in Israel to say it. And even he had to be giving an offering of blood to be able to speak such a holy name. But when he spoke it, basically what we could say is every knee bowed. Everyone went prostrate. When the name was spoken. You see, I'm, I'm building the case here. I don't know if any of you have caught it yet, but I don't just study the old covenant just so that we can find some fascinating tidbits. My entire goal is to reveal Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Covenant is meant to show us Jesus. So what we are talking about here is that there is a name above all other names that has been given. And that is not to be considered a light matter in Christianity. When you study the Old Covenant, you understand the significance of the ineffable name, and then you recognize that Jesus was given a name above. That is quite a staggering statement. The euphemism. I don't know how many of you ever used the word euphemism. I have quite a few big words in this message. Believe it or not, that's not my goal. I don't like to use big words. Uh, But euphemism comes from, there's a a Greek term to euphemia. And you've probably heard the word blaspheme. But to blaspheme, to a Jew, to blaspheme would be to take that name, the ineffable name, in vain. To use it wrongly. Well, so to euphem would be to speak rightly. But the Jews don't have any confidence that anyone could ever take it rightly. And as a result, no one can take it except for the high priest offering blood on the Day of Atonement. And so every other use of the ineffable name would be what's called blasphemy. It would be an evil use of the holy, holy, holy name. But euphemisms also can be used to show respect. For instance, that's how you euphem instead of blaspheme. So what I call the daddy principle. My children call me daddy. And if Hudson, I remember him experimenting when he was like three or four, and he was like, he said, uh, good morning, Eric. (laughs) And so what I said is, hey, buddy, that that is my name, and I'm glad you know it. However, you call me daddy. All right? He goes, okay. Uh, 
It, you remember that as a little kid? You just sort of wanted to figure out what that was like to call your dad or your mom by their first name. However, that's a show of disrespect. Isn't that a funny statement to think that a little child calling their parents by their first name would be a show of disrespect? Well, obviously, that depends on maybe how the parents uh, would deem it. But it is. It's sort of a hard thing to articulate. But for a child, there needs to be respect in their bearing towards their parents. And so what you see with this euphemine or this euphemism is the Hebrews have something, and I think we need it in the church of Jesus Christ. But they have an understanding of the person of God a little more clearly than we do. Or maybe I should say it this way, the holy, holy, holiness of God than we do. You know that Jesus didn't refer to his father just as even Yahweh. He referred to him as father. And I could say exclusively as father. However, I would need to dig a little deeper and study that. But I don't know how many other terms that Jesus used to describe God. But he used the term father. And so we can call that a euphemism. But what we see in the Hebrew culture is they also use the term Adonai. Adonai is basically, I know it doesn't sound like it, but it was a, a creative way when they would write the name of Yahweh down in Scripture. They would put vowels in there to actually, well, certain spaces in there in how they wrote it so that no one would accidentally read the ineffable name. And so as a result, when they would read it in Scripture, though it was Yahweh in Scripture, they would speak Adonai. And so Hashem if you know the word in Hebrew for name, it's Shem. Hashem is the name. And so instead of saying the name or even saying Adonai, there was another layer of protection so that they would not take it in vain. And they would say Hashem. They would call him Hashem. He is the name. And everyone knows what that means. In other words, we have varying degrees of separation from something we're not wanting to say. In this one, it's a positive one. It is so pure, so holy, that our lips can't touch it. And so as a result, we call him Adonai. And then we just say Hashem. He's Hashem. Heaven actually is a term. You'll notice in the book of Matthew, it's commonly used, which is the kingdom of heaven. And the Jews would use heaven as a statement of where God dwells. And so when you want to talk about Yahweh, you just need to say heaven. That's his place. He rules there. He is over that. And so when you say the kingdom of heaven, you are saying the kingdom of Jehovah. You are. You're just saying it in a very, very respectful way. It's a euphemism. How the Jewish Talmudists handled the name. So the Jewish Talmudists would be the ones that are transcribing. So they are taking ancient scrolls and actually transcribing them because scrolls wear out over time. And the Talmudists had this sacred job of transcription, which is no small matter to the Jews. And so the Jewish Talmudists would wash his entire body before beginning to write the words of God. So they had to be cleansed, ritually cleansed, even before they would ever start writing even a word of God. He would clean his pen before ever daring to write the most holy name of God. Fresh cleaning of the pen. And when writing that name, if even the king were to address him, he must take no notice of him. That's how seriously they took this name. Not only were the words of God so precious to them, but then the word within the words. And that word above all words was the name. The word above all words is the name. And when they came to that name, there was such a reverence. 
such a holy awe that they would clean their pen afresh, focus with every fiber of their being. It doesn't matter what happens. If bombs are going off nearby, if the king comes in and demands their attentions, they will ignore him, for they are focusing their attentions upon the writing of the ineffable name. The great condescension. Now what is amazing is in the Old Testament we begin to see this nature of God. Now the Jews oftentimes, they have a sense of sternness and the grandeur and the holiness of their God, but oftentimes they miss the understanding of our God's willing to condescend. And so as a result, when he condescended and was born in a little girl named Mary and was laid in a feeding trough, in a little town, a little dirty town known as Bethlehem. Something doesn't seem right when it's announced to shepherds but not announced to anyone of importance. When this man grows up and he comes out of Nazareth, which was the armpit of Israel, and then he surrounds himself with tax collectors and fishermen? I don't think so. Not the one who bears the name. You see, they were waiting for one to come in the name of the Lord. They were waiting for one that they could cry, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! They were waiting for the one who would come in the name. That's surely not him. That's surely not him. And yet in the Old Testament, we begin to see a foreshadow of what we could call the great condescension. The God of the ineffable name would come down and allow his ineffable name to be put on very small, humble things. God giving his name to one specific town, one specific hill, and one specific building. Yahweh said, my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. So here's the one that has the ineffable name. And he says, my name shall be in this city forever. Well, that's, that's an interesting statement, especially to us as Christians who understand a new Jerusalem who comes down from heaven, is actually the bride of Christ. Yahweh has chosen Zion. David shall build a house for my name. So there is going to be a temple, a house built for his name. Yahweh's name, the great name, the one who rules the heavens and the earth and all that is in it, is going to put his name upon a house? He is going to stick his name and condescend to that level? In this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, in the temple which I said, my name shall be there. Now this is a foreshadow of something. Because Jesus, when he is about to die, and he is about to be betrayed, he actually makes a statement. He says, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. What? And the Jews are like, it took 46 years to build this, bud. Three days? Ha 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 ha. But the temple of which he spoke was his body. Who is going to bear the name? Where is the name of Jehovah going to be placed? It is going to be placed on one specific house. And that house, his name, is Jesus. The foreshadow of the man of the name. I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. This is the name by which he will be called. You see the proper name of God, Yahweh, and then the word Sidkenu, which translated means he is. Remember what Yahweh means? He is. He is our righteousness. Now, the way you probably have heard that is the Lord our righteousness. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the Lord is Adonai, 
which is the euphemism for Yahweh, which is the proper name of God, which is He is. So if you want to get down to brass tacks, that's what His name will be. He is our righteousness. Do you see the gospel in Jeremiah 23? There it is. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means it is God with us. Okay, so there's a, there's a foreshadow of one who will come. And this one who will come will actually be God our righteousness. And then... This one who will come will be born of a virgin and his name will be, it is God with us. Save now, I beseech thee, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that comes in the name of Yahweh. Now most of you have heard that said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that, but again, Lord is the translation of Adonai, which is the euphemism for Yahweh. In the Hebrew, that's actually what it would be. However, it is creatively covered with a euphemism so that we would never speak it. There is one who is going to come in the name. In the ineffable name, he will bear it. No one's even allowed to speak it but the high priest. And this man's going to come in the name? How's that going to work? Well, we'll watch it. This, by the way, save now, in Psalm 118, is the word. I don't know why it's translated in the Old Testament as save now. In the New Testament, it's translated as Hosanna. It's funny, in the New Testament, we have Hebrew. And in the Old Testament, they translate it into English. But that's the word, Hosanna. So this is actually the coming, the entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus. They quoted from Psalm 118, and they said, this is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. This is the one who comes in the name of I Am. Whoa! Uh-huh. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried unto Jesus, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He has finally come. And they recognized it. So the name Joshua. Now many of you have probably studied the Old Testament. You know the stories of Joshua. He's the one that followed uh, Moses and was the one that actually led the Israelites into the land of promise. The name Joshua is very, very important in Scripture. It's very, very important in our message today. What it is, is it's an interesting... I, I, at one point, I, I cut like 18 pages out of these notes, by the way. Some of you are looking at these notes going, whoa, how could you actually get through that? Watch, we will. Uh, but so I was going to go through all the different points in the Old Testament where God is showing that he is willing to have men carry his name. Because men bore the name in the Hebrew culture of Jehovah and yet they were de declarations, man or woman declarations of the nature of God. So Joshua is a very unique name because it takes the name, the, the ineffable name of God, Jehovah, and it combines it with a verb, an action of God. And so the integration of Yahweh and a super powerful verb or action, and that is the name for Joshua. The, the word that is for God is Hayah, which you know as aye when he says I am. You know it as Yahweh when we say he is. But that's the verb haya, like haya. That's actually what it would be like. That's how you pronounce it. It means to be or to exist. 
And then we have the word yasha, which means to save, to deliver, to rescue. So we are going to combine the holy, ineffable name of God with the action of saving, rescuing, and delivering. And what we get, well, actually, the name for Joshua wasn't always Joshua. It was Hosea. And Hosea just simply means, it's like Hosanna. That's actually where it comes from. It says, help, save now. It doesn't actually make any mention of who will save. It makes a request for salvation. And so what we see in Numbers 13 is Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. He changed his name. He changed his name to make a declaration of who it is that saves. It is not going to be this man that saves. It is going to be Yahweh that saves through this man. So Hosea means help, save. But Joshua is actually pronounced Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves. And by the way, that's, I don't know if I've covered this yet, but that's actually how you would write out Yahweh. It's the four letters is what it's typically called in the Hebrew culture, the four letters. After the Babylonian captivity, the name Yehoshua, which is Joshua, changed. For the preservation of the name amongst the pagan cultures, the name of Joshua was subtly altered because it said Yehoshua, it said Yahweh too clearly in the name, and so to protect it from blasphemy, they actually changed the name of Joshua, and so it's a form of a euphemism, if you will. And so Yeshua, the son of Nun, is how Nehemiah writes about it. Same guy, but he goes from Yehoshua to Yeshua, same guy. Yehoshua and Yeshua mean the exact same thing. Just as A.A. Asher, A.A., A.A., Yehovah, Jehovah, Adonai, and Hashem all mean the same thing. Same name. Okay, this is important. I'm building this somewhere. In Hebrew, I am plus the verb to save equals Yeshua. In Greek, I am plus the verb to save equals Jesus. In English, I am plus the verb to save equals Jesus. I like that name. By the way, some, some people feel very strongly that we need to describe Jesus as Yeshua, and I'm not against that at all. However, it's the same name. It means the exact same thing. Just as something like Daddy and Eric would mean the same thing, in other words, I am Eric, but I'm also daddy to them. God is who he is. And whether we call him Yeshua or we call him Jesus, if we are talking about the same God, the same Jehovah God in Scripture, I say we're talking about the same thing. When we say the name of Jesus, we declare he was a savior, he is a savior. He will always be a savior. A.A. Asher, A.A., the great I am, because he so loved the world, has garmented himself in the body of a man that he might save. That's what we're saying when we say the name Jesus. Let me read it again. Because most of us, it's just a name, and we don't understand the value of a name. A name is a sentence in the Hebrew. And this is a Hebrew name. This is a name that proclaims something, and it proclaims something not accidentally, but very purposely. He was a savior, he is a savior, and he will always be a savior. 
A.A. Asher A.A., the great I am, because he so loved the world, has garmented himself in the body of a man that he might save. So when God declared, declares his name to be Jesus, he declares something a little different. Remember, there's a difference between me saying I'm Eric, and if you come up to me and you're talking about me, you don't say I am Eric. No, you would say you are Eric. It's the same when God speaks his own name. When he speaks his own name, what would he say? I am he that saved, is saving, and will always save. He would say, I am Jesus. I am Yeshua. That's what he would say. Jesus spoke the unspeakable. Whoa. Whoa, doesn't he know what culture he comes from? He's in the Hebrew culture. You don't speak that name. No, 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 no. You're not allowed to speak that name. You know, Jesus seemed to violate quite a few things. You see, all of those things in the Old Covenant were meant so that we would see Jesus when he came. He's the fulfillment of them. And so, you know that Jesus spoke the unspeakable? He did. Oh, no. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. Therefore, I said to you that you will... I said to you that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am. By the way, the he in the translations is added to help us understand what he's saying. I don't know if it actually helps us understand what he's saying because what he's saying is, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Did he just say that or am I imagining things? No, he said it. You want to know why they would pick up stones to stone him? We're always confused going, what did he say that was that bad? <laughs> Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, Jesus, don't you know you're not supposed to say that? And he just keeps walking. Throughout the entire book of John, he just keeps going. It's almost like John's particular focus in his revelation of Jesus was, He's the I am, guys. He's the word. He created the heavens and the earth. He is before it all, and he will finish it too. You see, he is the I am. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You saying that that's blasphemy? That's what they were saying. It's blasphemy. That wasn't blasphemy. He is the I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He is saying something that's not supposed to be spoken. Who would dare say such a thing? John 18. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Remember, they've come to arrest him. Judas has kissed his cheek and betrayed him into the hands of sinners. So he says, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh that saves, the one who will come out of Nazareth, that's who we're seeking. That's how he interpreted it, obviously, because what does he say? Jesus said to them, I am. Whoa, whoa, and what happens? Oh, it doesn't happen yet. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood there with him. Now, when he said to them, I am, 
They drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Whoa! Do you know who this man is? He is the man of the name. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Listen very closely. This is talking about faith. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. I didn't write that. I know most of you are saying he is, he is what? No, you must believe that he is. Those of you that desire to come unto God, you must believe that he is. He is Hashem. He is Jehovah. He is Yehovah. He is Yahweh. He is Aye. He is Aye Asher. Aye. He is. It's that simple. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When you know that, you know that he was a rewarder of those who diligently sought him out in the Old Testament. Guess what? He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is. Do you know that about him? Because that is the foundation stone of faith. I believe he is. And not just that God is, but Jesus is. Oh, you know what that, that means? Jesus is God. Whoa! Is that blasphemy for me to say it? That is truth. You see, that's the opposite of blasphemy. That's taking the words of life and speaking them with utter reverence and the fear of God upon my soul to tremble before the reality that the one, that holy, 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 ineffable name has been placed upon a man, but that man is no mere man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The only one fit to carry and speak the name of God without blasphemy. He's the only one that has ever done it. He did it. Whoa. The tetragrammaton. That's what the Hebrews will call it. That means the four letters. So tetra meaning four and grammaton meaning letters. So the four letters. So you'll oftentimes hear that. The tetragrammaton, if you, if you study the Hebrew culture, you'll, you'll hear that term. We've been terming it the ineffable name. So I want to describe for you ineffable again, and then we're going to build off of this. It's too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. It's indescribable, inexpressible, beyond words, beyond description, begging description, clothed in mystery. God in the old covenant is seen as cloud and fire. He's invisible. You cannot discern him, but he's revealed himself. He's given us text of scripture. He's given us tablets of stone. We have something. We're beginning to understand who he is. We know he is righteous. We know he is holy. We know he is pure and spotless. And we know he's a God who wants to reveal himself to us. But he still is shrouded in mystery. And we tremble before the realities of him. For he is holy, 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 and we are unholy, unholy, unholy. And so therefore, whatever he asks, we will do. If he asks for sacrifice, we will give it. But we tremble before his almighty nature. And Jesus comes. And what does Jesus do? But he takes the unspeakable. He takes the mysterious. He takes that invisible. And he makes it clear. The ineffable is no longer ineffable. It is understood in Jesus Christ. 
That isn't to diminish the fact that God is still ineffable and beyond our comprehension. But he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Yahweh. You know that no one even knows how to properly pronounce this? Because since there's no vowels in Hebrew, all you have is sounds. And so technically this is, like if I'm just going to read it out according to its sounds, it would be E-E-U-E. That's what it would be. We know it as Yahweh. E-E-U-E. No one even knows how to pronounce it because it was not spoken. And then after the Babylonian captivity, they wouldn't speak it at all because now there was no one to even be speaking it. And so as a result, to protect the Hashem, to protect the sacredness of it, we have actually lost the pronunciation. Isn't that an amazing thought? So talk about mystery. That's the ultimate mystery. We don't even know how to pronounce it. Even a great Hebrew can guess at it, but they don't know. The ancient language of the name of God is no longer even known. They don't even know how to pronounce it. That's an amazing statement. The mysterious, impossible to express, inconceivable name. And I think that's an amazing statement. It's impossible to express. It's impossible to articulate it. You try articulating God. You try it. And you, what do you say? I think that's almost perfect as far as the manifestation of understanding that we have. We don't even know how to say it. I don't know how to say it other than this. I've seen my God in Jesus. I know the ineffable one in Jesus. He is the I am in bodily form. He made known the I am. He revealed the mystery. He interpreted the dream of the Old Testament. He articulated the ineffable. He articulated that which was unspeakable. They didn't have a clue how to say it. Jesus said it with his life. I have come in my Father's name. Uh, what name is that? Do you know who his Father is? Uh-huh. Yahweh. He has come in that name. To do what? Father, I have manifested your name to those whom you have given to me. What did he do? He manifested his name. He made it clear is what that means. It may be impossible for us to speak the name, for we cannot help but do it in vain. But, you know that there's not one of us that can speak the holy name of God and not carry it in vain, in and of ourselves. However, we have been given an avenue to enter into the ineffable name himself, to be clothed in his righteousness and his perfection. He can bear that name. We can't. He can carry it upon his lips. We can't. Our lips are unclean. Our lips are dirty. Our lives are soiled. His life is pure. So when we enter into him, he can speak the name. And when we speak the name above all names, clothed in the person of Jesus Christ, we suddenly have access. We have avenue and we have right to speak that which is, should be foreign to our lips but is no longer foreign. We are given permission to speak the name of God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now that's the King James rendition, and I, you know I don't quote the NIV very often. But I really like how the NIV says this line. No one has ever seen God. 
but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has ever been able to figure out the ineffable. No one has ever been able to speak the name. He is beyond us. We cannot comprehend his grandeur. However, Jesus Christ, who is actually God himself, and who is in the bosom of the Father, has come to this earth and condescended and humbled himself to make him known. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? What did Philip ask? Uh, Show us the Father. Show us Yahweh. Show us Hashem. He that hath seen me, Philip, hath seen the Father. What's another way of saying that? He who has seen me, Yahweh that saves, has seen Yahweh. And how sayest thou now, show us the Father? Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. How could we say this? He's the invisible, I mean, he's the image of the ineffable. He's the image of it. We can see the ineffable. We can understand the great mystery in Jesus, the firstborn of every creature, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. The name above every other name. If there's anyone on earth that should hold high esteem for a name, it should be us, Christians. We mustn't be outpaced by the Jewish culture that has a reverence and a fear for the tetragrammaton. And we have the name above all names, the name that in and of itself holds the vast revelation of Yahweh. We have that name, and we are called by that name. He sticks that name upon us and calls us his temple. We carry what was once an ineffable name, but now is the clear name, the clear revelation of the nature of God in Jesus. The name above every other name. The Father of glory set Jesus Christ at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. You know, that's a pretty high place. That's a pretty amazing name. And we as Christians not along, we say, that's right. It is a high name. There is no other higher. So when we speak the name of Jesus, do we have a reverence when we do? Do we understand even what it means when it's on our lips? And do we have a rightful, holy trembling when we recognize that we have been given the ability and the liberty to speak something that most Jews would consider blasphemy? For we have to have clean lips and a pure heart to ascend that Zion. We have to be perfect to be able to speak such a word. 
But we don't look to our perfection. The gospel says it's his perfection that we claim. We are clothed in his righteousness. It's not ours. And so the reason we have a privilege is because of his work on the cross. We have been given his work, and it becomes our work. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His purity becomes our purity. His holiness becomes our holiness. For no one has the right to speak such a name. But we as Christians raise our hand and we say, he does. And I am in him. And so in him, I pray. In the name of Jesus. In him, I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a privileged position, not because of anything I did, but because of the work he did. And I look at the Yahweh that saves, and I say, he saved me. He is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I now have a privilege to have these lips be counted clean, though I know how much they have profaned my God. They are now washed clean, whiter than snow. And I am given the privileged position to be a declarer, a messenger, a harbinger of the name above all names in this generation. Jesus is the great Kohen Gadol. You guys know what a Kohen Gadol is? I read it once, but you'd have to have a good memory. This is the high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. What does the great high priest do? Well, what does the high priest do? The high priest was the one on the Day of Atonement that spoke the name. Who spoke the name when he came to this earth? The high priest. The Day of Atonement has come. You see, the Day of Atonement isn't just a day in the calendar. Today is the Day of Salvation. Today is the Day of Atonement. It's already accomplished. He has done it. He has already spoken the name. He has already brought the blood into the most holy place and sprinkled it upon the propitiatorium, the mercy seat. He has satisfied justice for you. Your sin is no more. It is washed away in Christ Jesus, in your high priest. He has stood for you. And he has spoken that name. The day of atonement has come. Our great high priest has entered in and he has spoken the perfection of the name of Yahweh. He is the expressed image of his person, the brightness of his glory. He has perfectly made known Yahweh. And now we have a higher name to revere. It's the name that reveals that which was before ineffable, impossible to fathom nor express. It's the revelation or interpretation of the unspeakable, the unutterable, unfathomable and awe-striking wondrous nature of Yahweh. And at that name, the name of Jesus, the name of Yeshua, the name of Yahweh saves. Every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that he is, in fact, Yahweh Lord. That's what must happen. When the, great, when the high priest in the Old Testament would proclaim that name, everyone would fall prostrate. But how about when we declare that Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh? We fall down as Christians. We bend our knee and we declare, He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are three separate persons. 
And the way that we truly bring glory unto Yahweh, the way we truly bring glory unto the Father, the way that we truly bring glory and show respect, and instead of blaspheme, we euphem. We speak words of life and truth is we honor the Son. And when the name of Jesus is proclaimed, we bend our knee and declare that he is Lord, and listen to this line, to the glory of the Father. That is our opportunity. You want to bring glory to Yahweh? Well, do it by proclaiming the name above all names, Jesus Christ. They say, but we can never know him. He is beyond us, ineffable and mysterious. But the Bible says he has been made known to us in Jesus Christ. They say, but we must never dare speak the name for fear of being destroyed for placing such a holy thing upon our unrighteous tongues and profaning that which is divine. But the Bible says, call out to the Lord. Call upon the name of Jesus, the name that is higher than any other name. And in doing so, you will find salvation for he alone can save. The one likened unto Moses. There is a foreshadow of one that is going to come. And he is going to be likened unto Moses. And so there is a scene in Exodus that is extremely fascinating. Exodus 33. Moses has received the Ten Commandments, has come down, and the people of Israel have profaned their God, and they built a golden calf. And we're calling that by the name. How horrifying is that? And so what did Moses do? He broke the tablets of stone. And now he's back up on Sinai. And they're going through the whole thing again. Well, we broke the law too. But God is a redemptive God. And though we have violated covenant, and though we have violated the name, God shows redemption. And he said, please, show me your glory. Whoa, 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 Moses. You're asking to see the glory of God? Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. You know what that is? Yahweh. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord, or Yahweh, said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord, Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So what happens before the revelation of God is fully manifest? The name of the Lord is spoken. The Lord and the Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed. This is what he says. The Lord, aye, the Lord, aye, God, merciful and gracious, I am, I am, is what he says. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, and what did he call him? Adonai. Let my Lord, Adonai, the one who is, who was and is and is to come, 
I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he said, behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you, are, whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, see the work of the I Am, A.A. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. All right, this is a foreshadow, by the way, and I don't know how many of you picked up on it. This isn't just a story in the Old Testament. There's a pattern here. What did Moses desire to see? The glory of God. Did you know the glory of God has been made visible to us? Did you know that the ineffable, the indescribable, the invisible has been made visible to us in Jesus Christ? Six things to be done so that Moses could see. Yahweh's goodness must pass by. The proper name of Aye, I am, must be announced. Moses is set beside Yahweh and stands upon a rock. Yahweh's glory passes by while Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock and he is covered with God's hand. Finally, Yahweh's hand is removed and Moses sees. Now, I have a hunch that what I'm about to tell you is one one millionth of what actually is going on in this scene. I'm trembling before the reality of what I am just witnessing here and what I'm attempting to articulate here. The pattern for the revelation of the name. First, Yahweh's goodness must pass by, for God so loved the world that he gave. You know the goodness of God has actually come to this earth and passed by us? It has been revealed, for God so loved. Oh, talk about goodness. Did we deserve this? Oh, no. But that goodness has passed by. The proper name of Aa, I am, must be announced. Well, guess who came and announced it? Jesus declared that he is the I am. Uh-oh, the revelation of God is about to come. We will see. But will we just see the backside of God? Number three, Moses is set beside Yahweh and stands upon a rock. Well, Jesus declares through signs and wonders that he comes from the Father and no man can lay hands on him. He stands upon something solid. Number four, Yahweh's glory passes by. Well, what happens? Jesus gives himself into the hands of sinners that he might do the work of perfect righteousness. He suffers. He is crucified. He dies. You cannot think of a greater picture of the glory of God passing by than the cross. In that cross, he expresses the holiness of Yahweh, the justice of Yahweh, the love of Yahweh, the righteousness of Yahweh, and the grace of Yahweh. And number five, while Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock, he is covered with God's hand. Jesus is buried, and a large stone is placed before the tomb. Six, finally, Yahweh's hand is removed, and Moses sees. The stone is rolled away. And suddenly the disciples, their hearts burn within them as they walk along the road to Emmaus, and they hear, and they see in the Old Covenant, they see Jesus. It is all made known to them. It all was about him. It is all for him. It is all unto him. He is! He is, is what is revealed. They see him. They see the I am. The pattern for us to reveal the name. Number one, this is the pattern of Moses. The top line is the pattern for Moses. Yahweh's goodness must pass by. Well, God has condescended to give us the gift of grace. He has blessed us with the gift of eternal life in his son, Jesus. Don't tell me that, Yah that goodness is not passed by on this earth. Because Jesus has come. 
and he did live the sinless life, and his mouth was no guile, and he died the death that was meant for us to die. But he, because he loved us, gave himself for us. Goodness has passed by. Number two, the proper name of AA, I am, must be announced. If we are to believe upon Jesus and be saved, we must begin by recognizing that he is, in fact, the I am. We must start with the fact that he is. You want to reveal the glory of God in and through your life the way you were intended, then you must declare that he is. You must declare that he is the I am. He is AA. Come to this earth to save us. Number three, Moses is set beside Yahweh and stands upon a rock. We must entrust our life unto Jesus and make him our firm footing, our confidence, our trust. We must believe the word of God and what it declares about Jesus, the word of God made flesh. You must build your life upon a rock, and when the winds and the rains come and beat against that house, it will not fall. He desires to reveal his glory in and through you. He desires that not just you would see Jesus, but that this world would see Jesus through you. Not just that you would know the ineffable, the unspeakable, the amazing, but that you would demonstrate the ineffable in and through your life. That when people see your life, they would be struck silent with ineffable wonder to say, I have no description for what I just witnessed. I saw Jesus, but in and through a man or a woman of God. We must believe the word of God and what it declares about Jesus, the word of God made flesh. Yahweh's glory passes by. We must behold the cross. We must see his astounding love expressed. We must see his glorious, startling, magnificent work and believe that his sufferings, his crucifixion, his subsequent death are only, the only means by which we can be rescued. Have you ever seen the cross? And some of you could say, what? What do you mean by that? Well, there's a curtain here. And I could say, have you seen the lake at Ellerslie? It's beautiful. Have you seen the mountains behind it? It's wonderful. Have you ever seen a sunset behind it? And you could say, well, I, I believe that they're there. How do you believe? Well, because you heard me talk about it. But there's a difference between hearing me talk about it and you seeing it. The truth of the cross is on the other side of a veil. And that veil is open, only opened up by the Spirit of God. You cannot see what I'm talking about today without the aid and abetment of the Spirit of God in your life. So what I'm asking you is, have you seen the cross? I'm just saying, do you know what happened? Do you know that it's a historical event? But did you see it? Did you see the glory pass by? Did the glory pass by you? Have you beheld? We must behold the cross. We must see his astounding love expressed. We must see his glorious, startling, magnificent work and believe that his sufferings, his crucifixion, and his subsequent death are the only means by which we can be rescued. That is the only means of salvation. I see it. He did it. He has shown me the love of the Father. He has revealed his heart to me. And he has shown me that he wants to save me. But not only that. He desires to save me, and he is able to save me. Number five, while Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock and is covered with God's hand, we must reckon his work our work, his death our death, his burial our burial. We must be hidden in him. Forsake and turn from your old life and come unto the death of self that a new life may spring forth. There's a little cleft of a rock here. It's called Jesus. And to get into that cleft, we must throw off the husk, the garment of our old life. It's called your old self. It's called your old man, your old nature. You throw it off. You turn from it. It's called repentance. And you come into the rock, and it enfolds you. He covers you with his hand. 
You are now in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, it's the same as being in a plane. When you're in a plane, you function by a new law. It's no longer the law of gravity, but it's a higher law, and it's the law of aerodynamics. And so now when that plane flies, you don't need to flap your arms to fly. You can't fly any more than you can save yourself. But when you enter into that rock, when that plane flies, you fly. When he died on that cross, his death is your death. His righteousness, your righteousness. His burial, your burial. No longer is your old life seen. His resurrection is your resurrection. You can't whip up resurrection life, but he did for you. Remember, Yahweh saves. He has done it. He came and he rescued you. But to be rescued, you must be hidden in the cleft of that rock. And finally, Yahweh's hand is removed and Moses sees. It's resurrection morning and the veil in the temple is torn in two. The amen has been spoken. It is finished. You have entered into the rock. You have repented from your old life and you have believed. It's resurrection morning. And that resurrection morning will never end. There's no more night. You see, where you live is in the heavenly kingdom now. And God is the light. God is the sun. There's no need for sun and moon. God is the light. And that is where you now live. The temple, the veil, which separated you from that holy of holy presence, from that ineffable one, has been rent. And now you have access freely into the throne room of grace, where you sit in Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. You have been brought to the ineffable one himself. And you speak in Christ Jesus the ineffable name of Jesus. There is newness of life in Christ Jesus. And we behold that we are new creatures who have been brought, brought near by the blood of Jesus unto the very near presence of Yahweh. To be adopted as his sons and daughters. To bear his name which is above all names. To become living houses for the ineffable life of Yahweh. And to speak the unspeakable, unutterable, ineffable name unto the nations of this earth. And to reveal the mysterious, incomprehensible nature of Yahweh for all the world to behold. It is not the backside of God that we see in Christ. You see, the old covenant could only give you the backside. But the new covenant brings you face to face with Jesus Christ, where we now are able to see his smile. We're able to see the twinkle in his eye. We're able to follow his gaze and know where he's looking, know where he's going. We're able to know him personally. In the old covenant, we did not have such a privilege. But in the new covenant, when that glory passes by, it is a greater glory. For it is revealed that we have been rescued from the penalty and the judgment and the condemnation of the law. And we've been set at liberty in the cleft of that rock, covered by the Father's hand. And when he takes that hand away, we see Jesus. We see the life of the Almighty. And the world around us sees it as well. In our face, they see his face. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow, the ineffable has been made speakable. You know that I can say everything there is to know about God in one word, Jesus. And in saying Jesus, I am saying he is. He is all that. He is. It's in him. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. It's in him that we are saved. 
It is him that we find redemption. It is him that, in him that we are forgiven. It is in him that we are washed clean. Our conscience is purged from dead works. It is in him that we have power over the devil. It is in him that sin no longer rules over us. Are you hidden in the cleft? Have you entered into Jesus? Have you declared that he is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Have you turned from your old life and have you found life in him? For it is that good. I oftentimes refer to myself as the happiest person on earth. And yet there's a few Ellerslie students that don't like that too much. We have an unspoken competition around here, and that is who can be the happiest. Because all of us have access to the supreme happiness of God. And yet most of us just lay it there, down there on the ground and say, oh yeah, I have that, but you know, I've never thought of actually using it. You have access under the throne room of grace to obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. How dare we pass through this life with such a privilege, such an opportunity, and turn a blind eye to it, a deaf ear to it. If any of you are even being wooed and you desire this, I can tell you it's not coming from my sermon. It's coming from the Spirit of God who is the one drawing you. It's called an invitation. And so any of you that have a longing, those of you that even know Jesus, there's a greater longing to know him better and to hold with greater reverence that precious name upon our lips. But not just our lips, our lives. Because we speak Jesus one way or the other, whether we're talking or not. When someone knows that we're a name bearer, that the name of God is upon this life and it's known as Christians, Christians. We could be Jesusians just as easily. That's what we are. We bear the name of the anointed one, of the Messiah. And if you're going to bear that name, do not bear it in vain. Do not blaspheme the name of Jesus. That is a far greater crime. The one who is revealing that to you is the Spirit. And so to deny the Spirit, the revelation of Jesus unto your soul, is what God would call the greatest crime and the singular blasphemy that is unforgiven. is to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the wooing and the invitation of the Spirit of God unto the great I am in Jesus Christ. Every day is a day of atonement. Every day is a day to speak the name now. I'm atoned for. My sins are atoned for in Jesus Christ. That means pacified, dealt with. Justice is satisfied. It is cleared. Justice has come, and now I'm known as justified. I am deemed just before the law. A day lived in the Holy of Holies, reverently proclaiming the name above all names. That's the day of atonement, and every day is that. The ineffable name for God was uttered aloud only on one day of the year, the day of atonement, and this only by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. When the people heard the name, they prostrated themselves in deep reverence. Well, now every day is a day lived in the Holy of Holies, reverently proclaiming the name above all names. Every knee must bow. Why? Yahweh has come. The one who came in the name of the Lord has come. He has done it. And he will continue to do it. And Yahweh is and can never alter, change, or repent of his nature. He just is. So who he was, he still is today. And who he will be that way forever, that way, and he will be that way forever and ever. Jesus Christ, Yahweh. Oh, 
Let me read the full sentence. That's what it's saying. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the I am. Jesus Christ is the Tetragrammaton. Jesus Christ is the Hashem. Jesus Christ is Adonai. Jesus Christ is Jehovah, Yehovah, Yahweh, Esher, Aye, Esher, Aye. He is that he is. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Thou, Jesus, art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Speaking of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews, what does he say? He references it about Jesus in the New Testament, and he says, thou, Jesus, you, Jesus, are Yahweh, and you are the same, and thy years shall not fail. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega. I am beginning and I am the beginning and the ending, which is, which was, and which is to come. What's he saying? In Greek, he's saying, I am. That's what he's saying. The great crescendo, the final book of the Bible, Genesis, he creates, and in the end, he declares, he has been here all along. I am. Is there any question about who he is? Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. I put an exclamation mark on that because it just needs it. Yahweh saves. You know that, don't you? He saves. But you know that his name means more than that? But his name is more than that. Jesus perfectly reveals the nature of the Father who is willing to do whatever it takes at the expense of his own person to save those he loves. And it is not just that God is able to save, but it has been revealed in and through the person of Jesus Christ that it is God's great desire to save that which is lost. Think about all of his parables. The lost coin, the lost son. Think about what Jesus is revealing. He's revealing the nature of the one who saves. I love you, and if you're lost, I'm coming to find you. And when he finds you, it's a day of great celebration. He takes his robe and sticks it around your shoulders, or I could say he takes the cleft of the rock and puts you in it and covers you with God's hand. He takes the fatted calf, and he puts his ring, his authority, upon your finger. And you're like, why me? I, I'm nothing. You have been chosen. You are loved by the one who bears the ineffable name. He has seen you in your low estate, and he has brought you high. So simply put, when we say Jesus, what do we mean? He has already saved. He is still saving. And he ever lives to save those who call upon his name. He saved you yesterday. He'll save you today. And he'll save you forevermore. That's Jesus. Final scripture, which says everything just in a nutshell, because that's what the Bible is. It's a nutshell about Jesus. It just talks about Jesus. Everywhere you look, it says Jesus. You see, Jesus is the entire purpose of the Word of God. The purpose of the Word of God isn't just our salvation, it's His glory that he would be seen, that the ineffable would be made known. 
and he has been. He's been made known in Jesus. And what's amazing is as Christians, he's made known to us. To us. Who has known the mind of the Lord? But he has revealed it unto us that we would know his thoughts, that we would know him. The ineffable, the one who you can't even speak his name? Yes, that one. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost, to the extremity, to the extreme degree that come unto God by him. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. You see, he is. Therefore, he wasn't just the savior back then. He is, which means he's the savior today. And by the way, if you haven't figured this out, he will be. He is also means that he will still be our savior tomorrow and forever. We have such a savior. And when you have such a savior, you do not fear not being saved. You cherish your salvation. Your salvation doesn't hinge on you, on your merits, on your good works, on your eloquence, on your prayers. It hinges on his work. And when you turn to that work and stop making your work your focus, and you make his work your focus, suddenly your life begins to work. You want your life to work? Focus on his work. You want your life to begin to function as it was meant to function, to reveal the glory of God. Be hidden in the rock. Be covered by the hand of God. Let him show you salvation in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.